Now, do you ever feel like uh, your life needs sorting out? Uh, here's a picture, uh, not of our house, but it could well be. Um, I don't know how you uh, would characterise this room. You might think that, oh, that looks like home. Uh, or you might think, oh, gosh, that looks very messy. That looks like it's, it really needs sorting out. And it does need sorting out if it's a bit like that, doesn't it? Because you'll be forever stubbing your toe. You can't find what you need. Um, it needs sorting out. And um, sometimes our lives are a bit like that. Uh, we feel it, like things are a bit of a mess, if we're honest. And we need sorting out. Uh, and if you ever feel like that, and I think we probably all feel that in some way, whether we're children or whether we're grown-ups, I wonder what your response is. When you feel like things need sorting out, what is your go-to response? Let me give you a made-up example. Sandra, um, she looks on the outside like her life is going well. Uh, she um, has a, a house, she has a job, she has friends. Most people would say she's a nice person. Uh, but she's increasingly found herself losing her temper, uh, snapping, um, uh, sometimes just on the inside and um, occasionally on the outside too. She'll get frustrated and angry and upset and bitter about uh, things that she, she knows aren't really a big deal. Increasingly, she's finding herself uh, losing control of herself a little bit. Uh, perhaps uh, in the car, uh, beeping at other road users out of frustration and anger, uh, perhaps even swearing, uh, snapping back at others who say insensitive things uh, to her, criticising other people more than praising other people. Now, Sandra wouldn't say her life is a total mess, but she's realising more and more that there is something wrong and, and, and she does need to sort it out. So the first thing she does in her trying to sort it out is she gives herself a good talking to. She says, come on, Sandra, get it together, keep a lid on it, be nicer. That talking to uh, herself helps her a little bit for a short while, not very much and not for very long. So next she, she tries some new strategies. Uh, she um, uh, Googles it and finds a blog, uh, six tips to manage anger. She finds a, a life coaching video, uh, contemplates uh, signing up to a course. Uh, she tries to remember when she feels frustration rising to count to ten or take some deep breaths. Again, it helps a little bit, but not very much and not for long. There's still a mass of anger and frustration lying below the surface. And new strategies haven't sorted that out. And so it leaks out uh, from time to time and characterises a lot of her inner uh, life feelings and thoughts. And so her, her next response is that of despair. She just thinks, gosh, nothing I can do seems to be dealing with this problem. Maybe this is just what I'm like. Nothing I can do about it. So she begins to withdraw a little bit from other people. She puts up barriers, doesn't want other people to see the real her, so it creates more and more distance between herself and other people. But the thing is, what Sandra needs, and what all of us really need, anyone whose life needs sorting out in any way, is what today's passage is really about. 
By the way, if you're not yet crystal clear on what it is that Christians believe, this is an especially good week uh, for you to be here. Uh, So congratulations, and do your best to listen in, because we're going to get right to the heart of the Christian faith, um, particularly as we get to verse 16. But first, we're going to look at verses 14 and 15, and there I think we see that the, the, the church by which I mean a local community, local community of Christian believers, needs sorting out itself so that God can use the church to sort others out too. Here's the point. The church will save the world if it sticks to the Bible. That's what verses 14 and 15 are about. A lot of people have lots of different ideas about how the church can do its job, or even what the job of the church really is. Within uh, the church, there are loads of competing ideas. Um, uh, perhaps if you've uh, followed the news about the Church of England, there are, you hear lots of different ideas, you know, adjusting to make sure it's with the times, fitting in with the culture, uh, being united with, with every other bit of the church. Uh, but also outside of the church, there are lots of ideas too. MPs have been increasingly wading in uh, recently, saying the church needs to uh, get with uh, the, the social programme. But this letter here, 1 Timothy in the Bible, is about how the church can do its God-given job, which is a much bigger job than people realise, because God has given the church the job of saving the world. Let's have a look back down at verse 14. Although I, Paul, the apostle, hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's uh, always a really helpful thing when uh, someone who's writing a letter tells you exactly why it is they're writing the letter, and you're not kind of left guessing. Here we get the answer to that, why the Apostle Paul has written this letter, verse uh, 14. I'm writing to you with these instructions... So that when I'm not there in person, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, the church. So this letter helps the church know when we don't have uh, the, the apostles, those special spokespeople from God, how we can be the church that God wants us to be. And... Um, that means that we're in a very similar situation to the people that Paul was writing to, because you know we don't have the apostle, they didn't have the apostles for this time. Um, and instead of just guessing, we have God's word on how the church should be. He is alive. God is alive. Uh, he, he didn't just uh, set things up at the beginning and, and, and stand back. He didn't just come into the world 2,000 years ago and then leave us to it. He is Involved and active, he cares about what we at Grace Church Upton are like, what we do, how we relate. The, the, the church of the living God is like his household, his family. And he, he cares um, uh, in a big way about what we do. And part of the reason he cares is because of the mammoth job he has entrusted to the church. Uh, there in verse 15, uh, it's, the church is described as the pillar and foundation of uh, the truth. Um, perhaps um, some of you will remember this picture I've wheeled out a few times. What, what is this a picture of? Nelson's nearly, nearly Niels Columbus. Nelson's column. That's right, Nelson's column. Well done. 
Um, Nelson's column. So, um, oh, let me just show you again in case you couldn't see. The idea of the column there is to hold Nelson up so that the, the whole world can, can see uh, the, the statue at the top. And so the church is to hold up uh, the, the truth, the gospel, uh, the message from God that everyone needs. But in order to do that, in order to be that pillar holding up the truth for everyone to see, the church needs to actually do something. It doesn't happen automatically. Uh, Paul says he needs to, to um, uh, write to tell them how people ought to conduct themselves, i.e. they won't get it unless he tells them this stuff. It's not common sense. Uh, perhaps um, that's some people's instinct. We should just know automatically how the church ought to be. It's not um, uh, given to us another way to, to work out ourselves, even if we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We need the Apostles' words in order to know. That's why Paul wrote this letter. That's why uh, Timothy and the church in Ephesus needed uh, to have it. We need God to teach us so that we can live God's way, so we can be that, that pillar holding up the truth. By the way, that is very liberating. Uh, not just for, for church leaders, uh, or even just as church members, but for all of those who care about what the church uh, is like. Because when there's um, a conflict in the church about what we're doing, what we should do, what, what our aim should be. One person thinks the Spirit is leading them one way, one person thinks the Spirit is leading the church a different way. Um, and by the way, that happens an awful lot. Which is up and down the country, so it shouldn't surprise us if it happens here in Grace Church Upton. And there will be conflict when that happens. But we aren't left to guess, and we aren't left to battle it out, and whoever's got better you know, arguments and is more persuasive and charismatic and has a bigger following wins. No. The living God speaks through the ancient words of the apostles by his spirit to help us and shape us as individuals and as a church. We're not left to guess. God has spoken. And we saw, that's why we saw a couple of weeks ago that Christian church leaders lead primarily through uh, the teaching of the word of God, not by uh, decision-making committees and so on. So how is the church to do its God-given job to save the world? Well, stick to the Bible, the uh, God's, God's given spokespeople, the apostles, the prophets, the Old Testament as well. Now, why is that? Why is, why is that the way it works? Why is the church to be defined by a 2,000-year-old document? And how could that possibly save today's world, 21st century uh, British people? How could that um, help people? And sort people's lives out. Well, the answer is in our second point, And it's there in verse 16. And we'll spend the rest of our time uh, this morning on this. Because the message of the Bible, the gospel, the gospel is the message of the Bible, the gospel, the good news, is how God does sort people's lives out today. Not try harder, not a bunch of rules or tips or strategies, certainly not despair. But godliness that springs from the gospel. So our, our second point is the gospel is the secret to godliness. You notice there at the beginning of verse 16, that's the idea. Uh, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. Now when it says godliness, 
perhaps we, we hear it as goodliness. Do you know what I mean? Uh, it, basically being a, a, a nice person, a, a good person. Uh, with, with others. Uh, but, but primarily that word godliness is about the vertical, not the, the horizontal. The, the word could be translated religion or piety. It's about our relationship with God. It's about how we can have right standing in the eyes of our creator. I wonder, do you feel like your life is right in God's eyes? Or does it need sorting out? What does God require of us that we would be right in his eyes? When Jesus is asked that question, he responds, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Have you done that, I wonder? I know I haven't. And that's why there's a mystery to true godliness. There's a secret uh, to, to being right with God. You could get the wrong end of the stick about this, um, this mystery, this secret. It's not that it's, um, it's hidden. Uh, let me illustrate. I've got uh, a secret which is hidden. Um, here we go. What do you think is in my pocket? This pocket here. A ring. There is a ring in here. I'm not Gollum. I'm not Gollum. There is... Uh, actually, that, that, that was uh, Bilbo, not Gollum. Anyway. Um, but um, I have... Shall I reveal the mystery to you? Some keys. And a Duplo pig. Anyone get that? No, no one guessed. Okay. Well, now the mystery is revealed. The mystery of what was in my pocket. That is not a great mystery. Not because the the mystery was really, really mysterious. I mean, none of you were going to guess it. It's not a great mystery because, well, who cares? It doesn't doesn't actually impact you. In the same way, the mystery... In, in, um, in chapter 3, from which true godliness springs is great, not because it's really, really secret, really, really hidden, but because it's really, really amazing what it is that God has revealed that was secret but is now known. Do you see? The secret to true godliness, well, it's, it's there in um, verse 6. He tells us what it is. And it's not six tips. Like when you read an article about the secret uh, to keeping your temper or the secret of a good marriage or the secret to losing weight or whatever it is. It's not six tips, but it is six truths. That in itself is brilliant news that it's six truths, not six tips. We've already acknowledged, haven't we, that, that, that we all fall short. I hope you recognize when I asked you whether you do love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. By the way, Jesus added onto that a second commandment. Love your neighbour as yourself. Um, now, um, uh, if you do those things perfectly, you can just walk out. You don't need the rest of the sermon. Um, feel free to, 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 to just leave. But th- for those of us uh, who do fall short, um, we need the secret to true godliness. And there are six truths, and this is the best thing. There are six truths not about us, nor about how life works and how to be better. There are six truths about Jesus and what he has done. The secret to true godliness is six things about Jesus. So, verse 16. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He, that is Jesus, appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations 
was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about how kind I am. It's not about how much I come to church, or how much I pray, or give, or read my Bible, or or tell other people about Jesus. None of those things make me godly. The secret to true godliness is all about Jesus. And so we're going to briefly think about each of those six things and, um, and then see, about, see what a difference that makes. Okay, So uh, first, he appeared uh, in the flesh. Lots of people I speak to seem to think that they would believe in God if only he proved himself. Well, he has. He came to earth in the flesh. If you'd have been born in a different place at a different time, you would have been able to speak with God, touch him, hug him, eat with him. Jesus is God in skin. But of course, actually, most of the people who um, uh, saw him ended up rejecting and even calling for his execution, which they got. And Jesus' body was destroyed on that cross. He said he died on purpose, actually. That was the reason he came. He died that we might live. As he hung there on the cross, he said, it is finished. My work is done. My flesh is given. So it's crucial to see um, uh, uh, the next thing, because those who are crucifying thought, yes, it is done. You're done. Problem solved. No more followers of Jesus. Jesus is dead and gone. So uh, it's crucial to see the next thing, because not only did he appear in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Jesus had said he is the Messiah, the Son of God. He said he's the only way that a human being can have life and have it to the full. And the Holy Spirit proved him right. Uh, We've been uh, reading uh, over the the 19 months that we've existed as a church, uh, bit by bit, John's Gospel, uh, going through it. And we've seen... Uh, The ways that um, Jesus' miraculous signs point to who he is and the truth about what he's been saying. And that is one way in which the Holy Spirit vindicates, proves Jesus to be God in skin. To be the one through whom anyone can have life. Uh, The the way that he says he can provide food to to nourish our souls so that we can live forever. And then he makes bread out of nothing to feed 5,000 people. He says that he is the resurrection that solves the problem of death so that we can actually live forever. And when we're tempted to disbelieve him, he raises a rotting corpse from the grave who walks out and talks. The Holy Spirit vindicated Jesus in his miracles. But primarily, the the, the Holy Spirit showed that Jesus is who he said he is by what happens after he died on the cross. Because after he was executed and, and the world cast its verdict on him, God overturned the world's verdict and delivered his own verdict by raising him to indestructible life when he came out of that tomb and appeared uh, to hundreds of people and showed himself uh, to be the one who has life that is greater than death. 
And so, vindicated by the Spirit, Jesus was seen by angels. Christianity is not at all like Islam. Uh, Islam um, uh, teaches that Muhammad went into a cave and um, uh, received a private revelation from God uh, that he then passes on to everyone else. That's a claim which is really hard to prove or disprove on its own merits. Because no one was in the cave with him. I mean, how do you know if he, um, if, if he uh, met with God in some way? Jesus, on the other hand, when he proved who he said he was, he did it publicly, out in the open, in front of hundreds and thousands of people. He was vindicated by the Holy Spirit again and again and again during his life. And then after his death, when he rose again, again and again and again, he appeared to many, many, many people. And he was witnessed to by angels. Now you might think, oh, angels, that sounds a bit far-fetched. Well, the Bible says very plainly, there's much more going on in the world than what we can see and what we can measure. I know... um, uh, uh, secular people will, will often recoil in, in the 21st century at the idea of angels. But often those same people will um, uh, see the universe as intending something for them uh, or cross their fingers when they hope that something will happen. Uh, or they will at least look for a greater purpose, a greater meaning, some objectivity in the world. Christianity makes no bones about the fact that there is a deeper meaning in the world because there is a greater person in the, in, in the universe, uh, above even the universe. There are supernatural uh, forces, there are supernatural beings uh, behind what we see. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, angels saw it and they came and told people. So perhaps you remember what happened uh, in um, the gospel accounts after the crucifixion. uh, The women who followed Jesus uh, went to... Um, uh, embalm the body and uh, when they got to the tomb they found that the stone had been rolled away and they were met by angels who told them he's not here, he's risen why do you look for the living among the dead? and then um, uh, uh, again and again we, we see in, um, as, we, as you read the gospel stories that, that angels God's um, uh, supernatural messengers are the ones who proclaim the, the news about Jesus so that human beings understand it. So you think right back to Jesus' birth, Mary uh, being told by the angel, Joseph being told by the angel, and, and so on and so forth. Angels are, um, uh, are those who uh, speak what God has told them to speak. And, um, uh, and, and the angels have told us what happened to Jesus. That we don't just rely on the angels, but the angels. That is, that is a big deal, right? Angels don't turn up every day. That's kind of the point. Angels, I wouldn't expect any of you have met an angel. Uh, angels, when, when an angel comes, it's a big enough deal to feature in the Bible. The Bible does not, you know, have that many things uh, that happen in, compared to human history. When angels come, it, it's Bible worthy. And the angels came and, and, uh, and told people that Jesus is the one that God sent. He is alive. And they now see him sitting at God's right hand in heaven. Uh, Angels are with Jesus, uh, with God, right now. 
So uh, he was seen by angels and he was preached among the nations. Uh, you see, while um, angels and the apostles, the, the Bible writers like, like Paul, saw Jesus in the flesh, the nations of the world, that's us, we're, we're quite a far-flung nation, actually, in, in, um, in biblical terms, uh, we heard about him. Uh, that's, that's the mechanic. He was preached uh, to the whole world. So Christianity is a good news message. It's not merely a spiritual experience which could be interpreted in different ways. It's not a moral code which ends up dragging us down to despair because we're not living up to the standards we ought to. It's a message of good news that has been preached right across the world. And as that message was preached, so Jesus was believed on in the world. Across the world, actually, the response to Jesus has been staggering. This is one of the, um, the issues that the non-Christian historians have to struggle to, to grapple with. The church um, in AD 30 or so uh, consisted of a, uh, a small roomful of grieving and uh, hopeless um, outcasts. That's all that Christianity was. But from that point on, in the following weeks and months and years, something dramatic changed. And thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and eventually billions of people claimed the name of Jesus Christ. So at that time, many thousands of people who were there at the time, who had seen Jesus, heard what the apostles said... And they believed them. It made sense of what they'd experienced. And they became Christian believers. And many of those people, and almost all of the apostles, believed that truth about Jesus, this gospel message, so firmly that they were willing to die. Not for an idea, a principle, or something they couldn't really know whether it's true or not, but because of stuff that they'd seen. And they were just unwilling to, to deny it. It was believed on in the world. And this message exploded very, very quickly, right across uh, Asia and Europe and Africa, and, um, and eventually reached us here in England. And, uh, and now um, uh, there are literally billions of people who say they believe in that crucified carpenter from Nazareth. Jesus was believed in the world, believed on the world, and he himself was taken up in glory. There's another thing that the angels saw, and they had to explain to people when Jesus, uh, uh, 40 days after he rose from the dead, um, uh, ascended into heaven in front of the disciples. I mean, they, like I imagine many of us would too, if we saw that happening, just were standing there looking up at the sky thinking, what on earth is going on? I mean, if you saw a man, you know, ascending into heaven, you probably would have the reaction. The, the angels had to come and tell them, come on, <laughs> he's going to come back, but you've got a job to do. You've got to go and tell everyone what you've seen. And because Jesus was taken up in glory, he was taken up to sit at the right hand of God in heaven and to be given all power and authority over the whole world. That's where Jesus is now. That's why you can't uh, see him right now, because he is at the right hand of God 
in heaven. There we go. Uh, six short statements that sum up the gospel relation, the gospel message, which is the secret to a relationship with God. It's the secret to godliness. That's how godliness comes. It springs from this gospel message. It comes through this one man, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh because he died to win a relationship for us with God and God proved it by raising him from the dead. And the message has come all the way uh, from that town in the Middle East to Northampton, to Upton, to you. It's for you if you're sitting here this morning. And if we stick to the gospel, if we let that gospel message into our hearts, let it take a grip of all of the other things in our lives, then all of the rest will follow. Everything else, uh, perhaps if you've been with us in the last few weeks, that we've seen in 1 Timothy, about the, the church being fit for purpose, about that, that ship that, that, rescue, that rescues others, avoids the reefs. Because if we fix our eyes on the real Jesus who lives, who died and was raised to life for us, then it changes everything. Uh, let me give a, a, a for instance. Remember Sandra, she couldn't stop feeling angry and frustrated. So um, how does this help her? Well, she remembers that Jesus experienced just what she does. And in, instead of him responding with anger, responded with grace and forgiveness, even praying for those who mocked and beat him on the way to his execution. At first, she's humbled. She recognizes things inside her are more seriously wrong even than she had imagined. But then she remembered, in that, st in that story that she remembers, she's not Jesus, she's one of those people who is mocking and beating him. She's one of the people that he prays for, Father, forgive them. She's one of the people that he died because of and for. And as he hangs on that cross, he is bearing all the guilt of that anger of the soldiers and of Sandra. And Sandra wells up as she realizes that Jesus died for her anger and her wrong responses. But she also remembers that Jesus is vindicated by the Spirit. Sin and death were defeated. So she needn't despair that this is the end of the road. Jesus died and rose again so that she might have perfect new life. So that um, she, she might have full self-control. Uh, so that she might have grace and kindness characterize her life, not frustration and tantrums. And she remembers that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God and is in control and will make it happen. If that's what he died for, he will make it happen in her life. He commands armies of angels and what he wants will always happen. And a flood of relief surges over her that this is not what she's stuck with. She isn't stuck. She's in Jesus' hands and he will change her. And then her mind turns to what it is that Jesus wants of her. And he remembers that he was preached at among the nations and believed on in the world. And so she realizes that this is a big part of what's going wrong is that she's thinking of other people in terms of the way they treat her and how that makes her feel, rather than turning her thinking around and thinking how she can serve others who are also broken and frustrated and angry people. And she recognizes that God wants to use her and her life and her words to bring others to life in Christ. And so the more she thinks about it, the more she sees the gospel is what she needs. 
to change her life. The gospel is the secret to, to godliness. The same thing is true of each one of us. It's true of individuals. It's true for the church. So everything we've seen in, in, um, in 1 Timothy, instead of bickering in the church, be united behind this gospel message. And try, instead of trying to, to fight for things to happen, to make things happen ourselves, we'll pray. As Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Instead of being carried along in the cultural tide of, of gender confusion, we'll embrace what Jesus reveals to us about our true humanity. And instead of seeking leaders who are especially talented or charming or whatever it is, we'll find those who are obsessed with this gospel message and won't stop talking about it and pointing others to Jesus. You see, true godliness springs from the gospel. Not from what you do, but from who you believe, where you put your faith. Because if you put your faith in him, then you can give up on trying to find ways to force yourself to be better. Stop worrying about what God thinks of you or what others think of you. Because if you have him, you have true godliness. Your relationship with God is restored. And your character is being reformed. You have a perfect record. You have a perfect future. You have everything. Let's pray.